We're going to worship the Lord through His Word by opening to the book of First Peter in chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. We are beginning a four-part series we're calling Political Christians. Political Christians. I wanted to highlight two resources from the outset. One is this book by Vincent Bacote entitled The Political Disciple. The Political Disciple found this very helpful myself. A good, a good introduction to some of the issues and how to process scripture and politics together. And then secondly, Jonathan Lehman's book, How the Nations Rage. This book puts a little more flesh on the bones, as it were. Just finished this book myself, and it is, it is outstanding. It is very helpful and very practical at points. My good friend Dan Arthur will lead and teach a class through this book. This book will be the, the resource through which the class enjoys and goes through. And so if you have interest in that class, we recommend buy this book. You can get it at Amazon, and then go to the class, which starts in a few weeks, and you will benefit. Let's first pray and give our attention to the only authoritative resource, and that is Holy Scripture. Spirit of God, we ask you to help us now as we open the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God that you would speak again through what you have spoken here. We thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. Thank you, my love. The reason... We as elders wanted to teach this series is not simply that the 2020 election cycle is in full, full swing, though obviously it is. It's not simply that we are 
so polarized politically as a country and as churches, though we can be. The reason for this series is rooted in the fact that politics is a discipleship issue. That politics is a discipleship issue. I don't mean by that that all disciples, all followers of Jesus must vote in the exact same way. I mean that you inescapably live your life out at the intersection of politics and discipleship. We all have political beliefs, political preferences or convictions, and we all live in a, a political world. We live under the jurisdiction of various forms of government as ordained by God. For instance, you have perhaps a driver's license issued by the state of California, or maybe a passport issued by the United States of America. And we pay taxes to local, state, and federal entities. We hopefully obey local, state, and national laws, or we get fined or imprisoned. And we vote in local, state, and national elections. And we do all of this as citizens of a particular city and state and country. And yet, the Christian is also a citizen of another place, a real place called heaven. And the Christian submits to an even higher authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. He never runs for office. He has no term limits. You'll never see him on a ballot. He's not seeking our votes, and yet he commands every knee to bow before him and every tongue to confess that he is Lord of all. Those are massive political claims. So this is an inescapable intersection for us between politics and discipleship, between a social order in which we live and the following of Jesus Christ. And you know what? It's an intersection that can be treacherous at times for the Christian. There is a lot of traffic at this intersection. And so what we need is biblical direction. What we need is God's Word helping us know how to think, how to live, and how to love at that intersection. And that's what we hope 1 Peter 2 provides for us. Biblical, authoritative, inspired guidance for how to think, live, and love at this inescapable intersection of politics and discipleship. So we begin, we begin in 1 Peter really with the issue of identity. And I want to acknowledge I'm approaching this a little differently than I would normally approach a passage of Scripture. I am doing more of a theological exposition. I am drawing out a theological category to make some specific applications. So I acknowledge that from the outset. I am drawing out a particular theological category, this category of identity, which is in this passage, that we might make specific application to this realm of politics. I want to see with you how this theological category, this issue of identity, transforms who we are, transforms why we exist, and transforms, in fact, how we relate 
to this intersection of politics and discipleship. So first, friends, identity in Christ transforms who we are. This issue of identity for the believer in Jesus, it transforms who we are. You see, Peter's readers were experiencing some degree of persecution for following Jesus. It was hostility at that intersection of politics and discipleship. The persecution does not seem to be empire-wide yet. It was not yet across the Roman Empire. It was at times sporadic. But Peter's readers in today's country of Turkey were experiencing real political persecution for their faith. It's coming down from the civil authorities at times, so you might think of government policy in ways starting to make life difficult for them. And God here fortifies these believers by showing them what has been fulfilled in them, who they are in Christ. Verse 4 begins, as you come to him, Jesus. Verse 4, a living stone, a resurrected Savior, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. So just stop and pause there. He's saying God is taking spiritually dead people and making them alive, living stones, because Christ is alive. And you living stones, he says, you're being built up as a spiritual house, a a temple, a new temple. The temple in Jerusalem, which was still standing at this time, was the place where God had dwelt among his people by his spirit. But that temple was like a riddle for which we in Jesus are the answer. God dwells among us now by his spirit. We are functioning as this spiritual house. And then Peter tweaks the metaphor to say to be a holy priesthood. We're the temple and we're the priests in the temple. No longer, he's saying, is there just one class of people, particular priests, who can draw near to God on behalf of others. No longer is there a big do not enter sign for everyone cordoning off God's immediate presence except for these few priests. Now believers in Jesus can draw near to God's immediate presence all day, every day, with confidence through the finished work of Jesus. We're a temple. We're this priesthood. And then he sums up this issue of identity down in verse 9. So skip down to verse 9 and see where he goes with this. But you, summing up, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, again, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, if you have a Bible with you, keep your finger there and turn to Exodus chapter 19, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. I'll put it on the screen for you as well. In Exodus 19, God is God is laying out the terms of his relationship with ancient Israel, Old Testament Israel. And notice what he, sa- what he says of them, beginning in verse 5. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, notice, you shall be my treasured possession. 
among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? Those are the words Peter is drawing on, aren't they? So God is saying, God is saying in 1 Peter chapter 2, the church, the church is the fulfillment of his eternal plan to gather a people to himself. The church is not a parenthesis in God's ordering of history. The church is not plans, plan B in his gathering of a people. No, the church is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan to gather a people for himself, to be a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Just think about that idea of holy nation. It means no geopolitical entity today can claim the title. Not even the USA, for whom we can give thanks. We give thanks for our country. And yet God has claimed this title, friends, for the church. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then God grounds all of this back in 1 Peter 2. He grounds all of this with a series of Old Testament quotations. Look back to 1 Peter 2, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture... Quoting the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I so wanted to preach this point, so I will a little bit. Peter's saying these embattled Christians who may feel rejected by their society, or feel rejected by their culture, as you come to the rejected stone, there's no shame for you because you're accepted in Christ. Those who believe in the rejected, exalted Savior, He frees you from shame. There is no shame before God for you. And then, by contrast, verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, Christ Jesus, has become the cornerstone, the most important stone in the foundation, in the building itself. Now a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for those who do not believe. So, if you are here rejecting Christ, if you are here and you've yet to submit to Christ, these are sober words. They are saying that instead of freedom from shame, Christ will be one over whom you stumble eternally. And so I would urge you to do what verse 4 says and come to Him. Come to Him now. Come to Him by turning from your own way and trusting in Christ. Come to Him believing. And if you have believed, realize that you are part of something incredibly grand and incredibly glorious, the church of Jesus Christ. 
As one person has written, we as the church, we are like Cinderella with amnesia. You know the story of Cinderella where we have gone to the ball, we've met our prince, we've tried on the glass slipper, it fits perfectly, but then we go home and we forget who we really are. Peter's readers may have been experiencing something of that amnesia, facing shame at this intersection of government and discipleship, probably wondering, is following Jesus really worth it if I'm going to experience this kind of intolerance and abuse from my neighbors? But then they find here in this passage, oh, the glass slipper fits perfectly. We're the fulfillment of God's plan of gathering a people to himself. His temple, his dwelling place by his spirit, his, his priesthood, the people who can draw near through Christ, this unique status we share of being God's holy nation and his treasured, his treasured possession in Christ. Wouldn't that make a serious difference for these embattled believers? And shouldn't it, friends, make a serious difference for us? I don't know what will happen to religious liberty in our country. Thankfully, we still enjoy a great deal of religious freedom. But I know there is increasing shame. We are said to be, for various reasons, on the wrong side of history, but not in God's eyes. There's no shame, quite the opposite. There is fulfillment. We are as living stones built into his temple. We draw near as his priesthood. We are his holy nation around the world, his treasured possession. So let that identity that we share together as the church define who we are. But secondly, it also transforms why we exist. Secondly, identity in Christ, this identity we've seen, it transforms why we exist. Back in verse 5, back in verse 5, we were told that we are God's priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so our purpose is now defined as praise. Praise that encompasses all of life. And then Peter returns to that in verse 9. Look down to verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that. So here's purpose clause. Here's why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's saying our purpose is to proclaim God's virtues, the perfections of the character of the one who rescues us out of darkness and brings us into the marvelous light of Christ. As he then alludes... In verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
But now you have received mercy. Here's one more Old Testament allusion now to the prophet Hosea. God had told the prophet Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman to show God's love to his unfaithful people. So Hosea married a woman named Gomer, and they have a child together. But after the first child, it appears Gomer, Hosea's wife, returns to her unfaithful ways. Gomer has a second child and a third child. And Hosea is not the father of those children. And so they are named No Mercy and not my people. But God promises a restoration of his wayward people, saying in Hosea chapter 2, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And then to illustrate that, God tells Hosea, go find Gomer, Go find your wayward wife, bring her home, and love her again. And so Hosea goes out, and it appears in the text, it appears he finds her in a slave market because he has to pay to redeem her back. It seems she has so sold herself to her immorality that she is now in some fashion enslaved. And so Hosea has to redeem her, buy her back, brings her home, and loves her again. And that's what Peter is drawing on to show us why we have this calling of praise. For we had sold ourselves to sin. We had prostituted ourselves to rebellion. We were in the slave market of our sin, hopeless and helpless, filthy in our guilt, covered in the dirt of our shame. And the Father said, I'll buy back that one and that one and that one and that one, for my Son has paid their ransom price. He has redeemed them. He has taken away their guilt and covered their shame with His righteousness. And now those who were no mercy now know His mercy. And those who are not his people are now his people, the church. Do you see why we have reason to praise? Do you see why we are to offer with the entirety of our lives spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through him? I trust you do. And so we could make application to all kinds of areas, but as I mentioned, we're trying, to, we're trying to shepherd our lives here, particularly intentionally in this one realm of politics. So thirdly, see how what we've seen relates to politics. See how identity in Christ transforms how we relate at this intersection of politics and discipleship. So I want to I want to draw three exhortations in light of what we've seen. Three exhortations. They are to prioritize, to unify, and to engage. Prioritize, unify, and engage. First, prioritize your identity in Christ. Prioritize that. We define identity in our lives in many ways. It could be our sports allegiance. We might say, I'm a Padres fan or I'm a Chargers fan. 
It could be our ethnicity. We might say, I'm of Hispanic descent, or I'm Irish, or what have you. We could define identity by where we live. I'm a Californian. And we also define identity through our politics. We say, I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, or I'm an Independent, or I'm a Libertarian, and that's fine too. But here's where this intersection can get treacherous for us because identities compete for allegiance in our hearts. Your various identities are competing, as it were, for the primary allegiance of your heart. So which, friends, is reigning supreme? That's the question. Which of those identities do you most live out of? Which is being prioritized? You see, when it comes to politics, each of the major political parties is expecting your allegiance. As Lehman puts it, you have to keep the rules of your political party. He says, if you're a Democrat, don't mention your opposition to abortion. That's the rule. And if you're a Republican, don't mention your concerns about mass incarceration. That's also a rule. You have to keep the rules of your party. It's expecting allegiance from you. On the conservative side, personal responsibility is the lens you most use and you're viewed suspiciously if you talk about systemic injustice. When God cares a lot about injustice and the oppressed, if you're on the liberal side, carte blanche acceptance is the lens you're supposed to use, and so you must accept all things about all people uncritically. And the gospel criticizes us. It reveals our sinfulness, that Jesus Christ might truly cleanse us. You see, both parties are vying for your allegiance and both parties are too small for the kingdom of God. That's why Pastor Tim Keller has said, for Christians to completely hook up with one party or another is idolatry. Of course you have a political identity. Of course you're going to identify with a party. But for Christians, he says, to completely hook up, completely identify with one party or another is idolatry. So what does it look like when political identity becomes idolatry? I read a New York Times article that I think was insightful this way. It said, when identity... When identity aligns with party, politics gets more vicious. Isn't that what we see today? When your politics becomes more vicious with a friend or family member or church member, in what you say, in what you post online, when you're getting worked up emotionally such that you don't care anymore if you sin in your words, attitudes, and actions, then political identity 
has become idolatry. And we must prioritize instead this identity. Chosen race. Royal priesthood. Holy nation. People for his own possession. We remember that higher, greater, superior identity. We prioritize it for it calls for our greatest allegiance, worship, right? Offering spiritual sacrifices, proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So yes, we can pledge allegiance to the flag. And yes, we can identify with a political party, of course. But we must prioritize our allegiance to the King of Kings and President of Presidents, Jesus Christ. That's one exhortation. Here's a second. Unify. Unify around your identity in Christ. No surprise to you we are divided in our country over things like immigration policy, fiscal policy, health care approach, international trade, marital norms, LGBTQ issues, religious freedom concerns, on and on. Many ways we differ as citizens of the United States. But this passage in 1 Peter 2, it speaks of a greater unity, doesn't it? And these are all corporate metaphors that identify us. A temple, a priesthood, a nation, things you can't do on your own. You can't be much of a temple just as a stone on your own. The Apostle Paul does use that metaphor for individual Christians, but he also uses it for local churches, and here Peter uses it for the church itself. Together we are the dwelling of God by His Spirit. We share something amazing in common. And you're not much of a holy priesthood as just one priest. But we share this calling of God's praise, this calling of proclaiming His excellencies who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And you don't resemble much of a holy nation as just one citizen, but as we unite together, that holy nation is broadcast to a watching world. Think about it. Our country currently has certain geopolitical tensions with Iran and China. But eternally speaking, you hold a lot more in common with an Iranian Christian or a Chinese Christian than a non-Christian in the United States. You realize that? What we share in common is far more profound and far more important than the politics we don't. I mean, Jesus... Jesus had guys among his apostolic band who were on different ends of the political spectrum. He talked about polarization. He had Levi, Matthew, who had been a Roman tax collector, a traitor, 
betraying his own people, selling out to the Roman conquerors. And on the other side, he had Simon the Zealot, sort of an anti-Rome militia. And these guys were together as part of the Twelve. It can be done. It can happen. We can unify around Christ. It doesn't mean uniformity. We don't have to agree on every issue. We won't. Being a disciple of Jesus doesn't tell you which candidate to vote for in 2020. A more complicated calculus is usually involved for each person, and there is Christian freedom involved as well. We will have Jonathan Schrader coming to speak to us right before the California primary. He's written in this regard, seek out difference. Make the church a safe place to have different political views. That's what I mean by unify. Make the church a safe place to have different political views. So timely with impeachment proceedings in the Senate starting this week, right? A highly partisan affair, it shall be. A great chance to put this into practice. Seek out difference. We can talk about these things. But maybe here's an exercise. As you do so, seek to listen more than you seek to persuade. Seek to listen to the other person's view more than you try to convince them to your own. Oh, friends, if we are listening to each other and learning from each other, the church, this church, will be a safe place to have differing political views. We could have Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot as members of Grace Church. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Lastly, third exhortation. Engage. Prioritize. Unify. Engage. Engage out of your identity in Christ. I'm not saying don't be involved in the political process. I think you should be. Not to create some kind of utopia here. That's not possible. But as Vincent Baycoat points out, the gospel is not the great escape either. We can't say, this world is not my home, so I wash my hands of all problems in it especially those situations that are closest to us, those that we might influence best, those where there is a degree of, you might say, moral proximity. Given that we are celebrating Dr. King's birthday, I thought I would quote from his powerful letter from Birmingham jail. When eight white Alabama clergymen issued a statement calling for patience, in the civil rights struggle. They said, you should address this issue only in the courts. And Dr. King was in the Birmingham jail for his civil disobedience. He responded as follows, for years now I have heard the words, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost meant never. 
He goes on to speak of your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park advertised on television and seeing tears welling up in her eyes as you explain that Fun Town is closed to colored children. As those who have received mercy, who were no mercy, I think those are good words for us. We can't wash our hands, but where we can influence, we should engage. It is right and good for us to engage out of a love for justice. Out of, love, out of a love for neighbor and a desire to see image bearers flourish in our country and our community. I thought Jonathan Lehman provided some, some poignant questions in this regard. You might say, Tab, where does that start? What's that look like? Here's what Lehman says. He, he encourages us to first start engaging right where we are in our homes, and through our churches. He says, quote, You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to your church, especially those who are ethnically different from you? You who love family values, do you love your spouse sacrificially? You who speak against abortion, do you embrace and assist single mothers? You who value welfare reform, he says, do you give to the needy in your church? You who proclaim that all lives matter, do all of your friends look like you? I hope you're seeing, brothers and sisters, that we can't shed our identity in Christ when it comes to this intersection of politics and discipleship. We must prioritize who we are in Jesus. We must unify as His people, this holy nation. And we must engage out of the mercy we have received in Christ. So let us close celebrating that mercy as we take the Lord's Supper together. Would the music team please come?